Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTV buddies, I want to tell you about a new podcast called Just My Type Podcast. It is co-hosted by one of my first guests, Dobie Maxwell, and his co-host is Sammy Parker. This is a podcast about diabetes. So Sammy is a type 1 diabetic and Dobie is a type 2 diabetic. The podcast is all about the challenges and the perceptions of diabetes management, the healthcare system, along with favorite diet choices and Diet Coke flavors, just all kinds of great stuff about diabetes done in a way that's easy to listen to because the hosts have personality and you get great information while being entertained. So check it out. Just My Type podcast on all the apps. And you can also go to JustMyTightPodcast.com to check it out. Thanks. Hey, BTB buddies. On July 30th of 2021, I hosted a special live event with Tom Dreesen to help promote his book, Still Standing, My Journey from the Streets and Saloons to the Stage in Sinatra. We had some of Tom's good friends from his many years of performing on the show, and we had a Q&A for a couple of big fans at the end of the show, and the whole thing gives some great insight to Tom's fantastic career in comedy. And for that reason, I thought I'd make the uncut audio available to you. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you haven't gotten Tom's book yet, head over to Amazon or your local bookstore and get it. It's still standing, my journey from the streets and saloons to the stage in Sinatra. And guess what? There's a link in the show notes that you can get right over there and buy it. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, we are live on Facebook and YouTube. This is the Behind the Bits podcast. I should let you know who's talking here. This is Scott from the Behind the Bits podcast. And tonight I have the person who is responsible for me starting comedy and for me starting this podcast, the Behind the Bits podcast. His name is Tom Dreesen, and he wrote a book called Still Standing, of which I own a few copies and have read front to back. And he is my comedy idol. I don't idolize too many people, but Tom is my comedy idol. And this book made me idolize him even more. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's bring on Tom Dreesen. (laughs) (laughs) They're all here for you. Scotty, I love your new toupee. It looks fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this is self done. How are you, Tom? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah. The, the book, uh, it's just been so much fun. It, you know, you said it's still standing. The subtitle is My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. And I've just been having so much fun since it's, it's come out about three weeks ago. And, and it's selling real good. And the reviews are good. 
So I'm having a lot of fun with it. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm doing much better now that I've read the book. Uh, first of all, I want to tell everybody who's watching, we got quite a few people coming in right now. If you would do me a favor and share the stream that you're watching with your friends, because what Tom has to say here is more important than just us. Everybody that can hear it is going to have a better day and they're going to have a better week and a better 2020 from hearing Tom. So share that up. I know there's things called watch parties and stuff. I don't know how to do it, but you all know how to do it. So let's make sure that we get a big audience for Tom and we get to talk about this book. So let's make sure you do that. And uh, Tom, I just want to say a few words before um, I start grilling you about this book. Uh, if you if you remember um, uh, going back about probably seven, eight months ago, uh, I approached you to be the first guest on a podcast called Behind the Bits. And nobody wants to be the first guest on a podcast because that podcast isn't doing anything yet and there's nobody going to listen. And you graciously said, yep, let's do it next week. And we recorded that episode and I have listened to it back probably three or four times since then. It's my, by far my most downloaded episode. But uh, the reason why I asked you goes back to when I was about nine or 10 years old and I saw you the first time on Mike Douglas. And you told a joke that I always get wrong. And it's, uh, it's about a guy offering you drugs, I think amyl nitrate. And he says, you're going to love this stuff. It makes it feel like the back of your head's going to come off. Now, that's all I'm going to say. Could you please tell the joke one more time uh, so that you can you can tell everybody the thing that got me going? I did over 500 appearances on national television. <laughs> I had to come up with a new six minutes every time I did it. You know, <laughs> so you know that joke though. I, I do recall I did that years ago from an actual incident that happened at a party when I first came out of the Hollywood. Everybody was there were three people at the comedy store not getting not using drugs. It was me, David Letterman, and Jay Leno. And, uh, and that's why we're all still here, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> but, but I went to one of those parties and, they, and they, a guy had some self amyl nitrate, but this guy said to me, Hey man, he had this stuff. He said, pop this and sniff it. I said, why should I do that? He said, it's wonderful, man. feels like the whole back of your head's coming off. I said, couldn't I just light up a cigarette and you hit me in the face with a shovel? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, I did that on, on, on the Mike Douglas. I, I did. Uh -huh. that. So, yeah. so it's funny what you remember, because I remembered that all of my life. Uh, I, I always said it wrong when I said it. But from that day on, when I saw you on Mike Douglas, I was scouring the TV guide looking for your name and watching you wherever you showed up. So you were doing Carson at the time. You were doing Dinah Shore. You were doing Merv Griffin, Soul Train, American Bandstand, Midnight Special. And I was looking for you just everywhere. And you, you were the, I mean, I was a dorky little nine, 10 year old kid and you, you were the guy for me. So, and that came back much later when I had the opportunity to do stand up. So you, that's why, that's why you're my guy that you're the one I go after all the time. Uh, thank you very much. I'm, 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 I'm happy that I am. I'm, I'm sad that your life is so shallow that I'm your guy. Other <laughs> guys out there, but thank you. Yeah. And folks, thank you again for sharing this. Um, if, you, if you're just popping on, if you share this feed on your timeline, more people will see it. And Tom's got some great stuff to say. I really appreciate that because this book, Still Standing, which is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, 
it's available hard hardback and i've also got the kindle edition because i like to read in bed and it's just a fantastic book i've i've as i told tom i've read it cover to cover and i wanted to ask you tom um at this point in your life what is it that prompted you to write the book first of all you know, all the years that I toured uh, with these incredible artists, I, I would journal. If something profound happened that night or something that I thought was poignant or funny, I'd journal it. I, and, and I thought one day I would like, you know, just write a book because uh, that all of the wonderful things in the 50 years I've been in show business that have happened to me, um, that, you know, I, this book is really about a little boy who had eight brothers and sisters and lived in a shack. Had, we had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. Raggedy poor kid. If, if, if you had holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in there. If a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. You know, we were raggedy poor. This, this little boy, when I was, I'm talking like third person, but would carry, take his shine box and trudge through the snow every night to all the taverns in his neighborhood and shine shoes in bars to help get money to help feed his brothers and sisters. And while he was shining shoes, Frank Sinatra was on the jukebox playing. Mm-hmm. It was the first time he heard it. And this yeah. is the journey of a little boy who went from Harvey, Illinois, hearing Sinatra on, on the, in the jukeboxes and in the taverns to one day carrying Frank Sinatra's coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. Wow. So it's that journey, you know, my, my journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra mm-hmm. and all the wonderful things that happened there. But on the way, I got knocked down a lot physically, as you know, in the book, physically knocked down as well as literally knocked down. And every comedian that you're going to talk to will always tell you those hardship stories. Mm-hmm. Nothing that you ever accomplish in life you, you, do you treasure as much as the stuff you worked so hard for and were rejected so hard for. So that's what the book is about. I, I like to think it's triumphant, <clears throat> that it, it's just this journey. And all those times I got knocked down, I kept getting back up. Thus mm-hmm. the double entendre, I'm still a stand-up comedian, and I'm <laughs> still standing, you know. Uh, and, and then the last thing, my grandchildren <clears throat> are going to have children one day. Uh-huh. And they're going, to, they're going to say, what was your grandpa all about? And I thought, well, now you can look at this book. And by the way, my flaws are in there as well as my, my successes, but my flaws are in there too. A lot of things I did that I'm not proud of, but that's life, isn't it? Right, right. <clears throat> and you, you became the type of guy who will um, uh, have a stranger approach you to be on a podcast or a live stream like this and say yes. And I got to tell you, I really appreciate it. Well, you know, nothing we learn in life is ours. We, we learned it from someone else or through experience. And, and it's, you can't take that to your grave. You've got to share that. I give motivation talks. I've read literally hundreds of books on the powers of the mind in my, when, when I was in the military and stuff when I was out at sea. Mm-hmm. And every positive melanotype book you can think of. And so now I give motivation speeches, uh, um, you know, subjects on perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And you have to share that if these principles, and they did, they, they mm-hmm. helped me uh, uh, get through some tough times and accomplish things. And I want to share that. I, I give one to stand-up comedians called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. Mm-hmm. Because this is a wonderful journey you're on. Those of you who are stand-up comedians, you're the luckiest people in the world that you have this gift that you can make people laugh. And, and I always make this analogy. You know, if you're, they did a, a survey around the world on the 10 fears of man. Uh, they did it for eight years, insurance companies. And the 10 fears of men, death was fourth. Pain was second. Getting up in front of an audience was the number one fear of mankind. Yeah. You can do that. If you're a house painter or, or, or a lawyer or a truck driver, and you can get up and talk to an audience for an hour, 
you're in less than one percent of the population of the world. If mm. you make people laugh for an hour, you're in less than one millionth of one percent of the population of the world. So mm. communities, you know how special you are. Yeah. You make people laugh. They're healthier because of your service. That's not even a theory anymore. Laughter is psychologically a deterrent. We all know that the brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. So mm-hmm. if you're watching a comedian, you're not thinking of your problem. So it's a psychological deterrent. Now, because of Norman Cousins, who wrote the book Laughter Math and wrote another book, The Anatomy of an Illness, we found out from UCLA did research that when somebody laughs, endorphins are released from the brain into the bloodstream. So after a hearty laugh, after tears are running down your eyes, you go, oh, that sense of well-being, your body's going through an actual chemical change. So not only is laughter psychologically a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. So mm-hmm. comedians are physicians of the soul, Dr. Scott. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I want to talk about the book is that you, um, I, I read a lot of biographies and a lot of biographies are, um, I was a kid, I was poor, let's jump to when I was 20. And mm-hmm. You spent a good amount of time talking about your childhood, and uh, you weren't just poor; you were you were dirt poor. And somebody that has to, when you're seven, eight years old, that has to go and um, shine shoes, and that money's not for you to buy candy; that's money for you to take home so you have food on the table. Uh, do you think that you would be where you are now? if you hadn't been through what you were as a child? So that sound like you were a middle-class kid. Good question. Great question. No. And whenever I give motivation speeches and I give that childhood and I talk about the, the childhood and, and the shack we live in, and I always say that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. I said in bowling alleys, I caddied in the summertime, I shined shoes in taverns, I had a paper route. <clears throat> I grew up in a neighborhood, steel mills and factories. You know, all over the place in 36 taverns, steel mills, factories, blue collar right. people. And the mantra in the neighborhood is you only deserve in life what you work for. Uh-huh. All you deserve in life what you work for. And all the hardships that happened to me in the military and everything, I always went back to my childhood. You know, that I grew up, you know, the, the oldest cliche in the world is when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But that's very true. Right, <laughs> right. Finally, you know, comedians, look at what those guys go through, those men and women go through. You're, 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 you're wanted, you're not. They love you, they don't. You're, you're hot, you're, you're cold. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, Dick Sean once said that uh, singers live from, people live from day to day. Singers live from song to song. Comedians live from joke to joke. Your option's yeah. up at the end of every joke. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that background is, is the foundation of my life, that childhood. Right. And I don't regret one moment of it. And there were, there were some, as you know, from the book, there were some tough times. And the amount of tenacity you showed, you know, from the time you were a little boy all the way up through last year is just amazing. It, it just, uh, I mean, this book, this book's got, it's a roller coaster and uh, a lot of emotion in it. So it was, it was, it, it was a tough read sometimes. Um, there are a couple questions I wanted to ask you about, uh, about your childhood. One of the things that you, you brought up uh, is the, the guy who protected you when you were young, and it was Gucci. And uh, you talked about keeping a relationship with him for 55 years after that. Do you, can you um, touch on, you know, what kind of a guy did he become? What did he do with his life? Everett Nicholson uh, was his name. His nickname was Gucci. Uh-huh. I grew, grew up in a predominantly black area, you know, uh, and, and so I, 
I, I played basketball on all black basketball team. I played football on all black football team. I went ball hawking as a kid, as you know, in the book with the black kids in my neighborhood and all that stuff. But in the neighborhood I grew up in, Everett Nicholson, his father was the first black businessman in Harvey, Illinois. His father had a, um, a plumbing business, Nicholson Plumbing. Mm-hmm. And Gucci, Everett Nicholson, Gucci worked for his dad and, and they had a hard work ethic, you know. And uh, But Gucci was quiet. But he was a classic example of walk lightly but carry a big stick. Uh-huh. Everybody in the neighborhood knew you didn't fool with Gucci. He was a great football player, too, by the way. But you didn't fool with Gucci because he'd listen. He'd always try to stop violence. But if you brought it to him, Katie bar the door. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, and everybody knows. So how he became my friend, there was two guys, Damon and Curtis, in my neighborhood, two, two black dudes who later became good friends of mine. But they used to, when we got in fights, they would double team me. One would get behind me and the other would push me up. They would always double team me, you know. And uh, one day Gucci was walking by and he mm-hmm. saw that and he, told him he said he grabbed him pulled him off of me and he said from now on when you fight that white boy you do it one at a time you hear me you hear me and they never mess with me again (laughs) boy gucci was older than me now i'm every time gucci come around i I was always high you know he was real quiet at first by me and then one day i made i I did an impression of his brother leroy Uh cracking up and we we bonded we were friends ever since and and through the years i talked about in my act on the Tonight Show, on my album, I did an album in front of an all-black audience called "That White Boy Is Crazy." <clears throat> that White Boy Is Crazy. <clears throat> I did it in my own backyard, you know, uh-huh. and, and back in Harvey, Illinois. And uh, <clears throat> hold on one second. You're all right. Uh, <clears throat> ah, anyhow, <clears throat> you ever get one of them dry things in your throat? Yep. <laughs> anyhow, so Gucci, <clears throat> when I talked to him on the Tonight Show, when I toured with Sammy Davis. They didn't believe. People thought this was some character from my that I made up. Uh-huh. So we went to Chicago, and Gucci was in the audience, and I'd do the routines about growing up with Gucci. I had a lot of funny stuff about how he protected me and stuff. And when I said, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, he's in the audience tonight. Sammy Davis Jr. come running out of his dressing room <laughs> at the Milan Theater. <clears throat> came running out on stage. He said, I want to see it. And our audience is cracking up. <laughs> of course, Gucci waved at him. You know, uh, I, I, he later, after he retired from the steel mill, he worked at the steel mill where I lived in, in the shack behind that. Mm-hmm. And that later, he later opened up a tavern. And when I'd go back, I would go back to his tavern. And in fact, I, the picture on my album is in his tavern. And, and oh. uh, I, I should have I sent you that picture. We could have put it posted it here. That's cool. Um, we're, we're getting some uh, uh, comments from the audience. Uh, Steve Frito says, that's a great attitude, Tom. Thank you for the motivation and the inspiration. Appreciate, appreciate you sharing your talent and knowledge. Thank you, Steve. Steve's actually a friend of mine, so he popped in, popped in for me. Uh, another thing I wanted to uh, talk about, and you didn't, you didn't mention this in the book specifically, um, Glenn was your older brother and Darlene was your older sister. And as the book states, they were pretty much kind of surrogate parents to you uh, when mom and dad were um, doing their thing. Um, How did, how did they feel when uh, you finally made it big? I mean, what, what, what kind of reaction did they have? They're my biggest fans. My my, Darlene passed away, as you know, um, she had multiple sclerosis. She, she contracted it when she was uh, like 24 years old and it took her from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So every year I'd go back to Chicago and I'd run 26 miles and call it 26 miles for Darlene. And um, 
and and she and and, and there's a long story about that in the book. But uh, they, you know, when you're both my parents drank quite a bit. My father was alcoholic. My mother wasn't at first. My mother joined them for a while. She drank with them for years, and and then one day later on, after he passed away, she she quit drinking. She'd have a cocktail once in a while. But when you're children of, of alcoholics, I read one time called adult children of alcoholics and i thought i was reading my diary but when you're children of alcoholics you bond we had yeah. eight kids in that family and those brothers and sisters bonded you know mm-hmm. we were one another and and glenn my oldest brother glenn was he was the first strong male figure that i met when he was you know when he was 10 years old he was taking me out to shine shoes he was taking me out to sell newspapers you know <clears throat> he had a great work ethic he was a young boy <clears throat> and by the way he was a tough guy too he didn't take a whole lot of guff from anybody. Uh-huh. And then Darlene, of course, I can't remember <clears throat> a day as a child that she was helping me across the street, holding my hand. If I shine shoes, she sometimes would go with me and walk the neighborhood with me. Uh, if I sold newspapers, she'd help me sell newspapers. Um, she was she was just the, the if I went to, I was an altar boy. I would go to church six days a week because I'd serve mass. Darlene went to mass six days a week. Only one day she didn't go to Saturday. She she was just a good human being. If if Darlene's not in heaven, there's no heaven. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I I never heard her say an unkind word about anything. You know? Yeah, I, it's it's very evident the uh, the effect that she had on you because I mean she I'm uh, you know in a lot of ways really uh, made you what you are today because of the way she was with you and, and and Glenn the same way. I think he instilled the kind of the toughness and the hard work ethic and Darlene kind of helped you with uh, the humanitarian part. So, you know, it's the, those two really shaped you and that's, it's, it's really, it, it's very noticeable and it came out in the book very well. Uh, God bless him. That, that, yeah. Anyhow. And by the way, I see Lou Deck says, what's the picture? <laughs> what's the picture? Yeah. <laughs> Lou Deck is a great stand-up comedian that him and I worked at Comedy Store many years ago together. But more than that, we had a basketball team called the Comedy Store Bombers. And on that basketball team was Lou Deck, of course, uh, David Letterman, um, uh, Johnny Witherspoon, um, Roger Pouch, uh, Roger Bear. Um, I'm trying to think of all the guys. Um, uh, Lou's partner. Uh, w- w- on the, uh, God, who, who are? Oh, anyhow, Lou would probably remember all the guys. But, but uh, Daryl Igus was on the team. Uh, Jimmy Walker was on the team, but we, yeah, there's the team right there. What a great picture. There you go. There Tim, you go. Tim Reed was on the team. Tim Reed, that is David Letterman, Tim Reed, Lou, Roger Pelts, great basketball player, Roger. He played at University of Kentucky, I think, or Louisville. And I guess Jimmy Walker, Johnny Witherspoon, me, um, um, Bobby Kelton, that's Jimmy O'Brien, Seamus, Roger Bear, uh, the, the Mooney twins, Joe Restivo, and, and Lou's partner, um, uh, Jimmy. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jimmy. And anyhow, and and then of course Corky in the middle. It was a is a little people. We can't. I guess he's dwarf. I'm I'm, I'm so politically correct. Police are watching. Forgive me, but anyhow. Uh, now here's the fascinating thing. See the Mooney twins. That's Paul Mooney's sons. Okay. Know, they were our point guards. Now in order for us on the team that they were on to get the ball, we had to steal it from the Mooney twins. Yeah. <laughs> <to> one another. <laughs> oh, that's great. I uh, I. Lou sent me that picture a while back, and then he sent it to me again this week, and uh, I appreciated that. That's a that's a neat thing. Talk talk to me a little bit. Uh, you mentioned your mom, and she did get to see you when you uh, you made it big, and 
the big thing for her was the ambassador's pump room. And she was always reading the paper about the people that they saw there. And you finally got to take her there. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. When I was a little boy, I'd bring my newspapers home in the morning. I have paper out and my, there was a column in the sun times all the time, cups column um, that he, the, the 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 ambassador east was where all the stars would come to chicago and there was a, a place there called the pump room and and that's in, in the hotel that's where all the stars would have lunch and dinner and it was just a and they had a thing called the number one booth and in the number one booth every day in the column they'd say seen in the number one booth clark gable or seen in the number one booth um marilyn monroe or, or mm-hmm. betty Gable. my mother would read every morning she'd get she'd you know after ten and borrow night i'd bring the people she'd take Oh, look, honey, look who's in the number one booth. You know, uh, she'd name these stars, you know, uh, Betty Grable or Marilyn Monroe or Frank Sinatra or Ava Gardner. Whoever was in town would be in the number one booth. And I said to her one time as a little boy, I said, Mom, you should try to get a job down there as a bartender. I said, and, and uh, maybe you could meet these stars. She said, oh, honey, they don't hire the likes of us down there. You know, <laughs> Southside Irish. They don't hire the likes of us down, down up at, at, at the message. Years later. I'm touring with Frank Sinatra, and I'm uh, appearing at the Erie Crown Theater with Frank. And my mom came downtown to the pump room, and we had lunch. And the, the maitre d' like the number one booth, Mr. Dries. And I said, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> in that number one booth. And I told her, I said, Mom, remember you told me that they don't hire the likes of us down here, that they uh-huh. let the likes of us sit in the number one booth. And, yeah. that, and the next day, Cup put in a column. Interesting. He put... He knew the story that I took my mom down. He put in the column, number one booth in the pump room, Glenora Dreesen and her son, (laughs) which was okay with me. And my mom mom had that column by her bedside when she died. That's a great story. Hey, um, I've got a few people who have known you from way back and uh, some surprise guests. I'm going to bring them on one at a time because I have the feeling if I bring them all in at the same time, this is going to become pandemonium. So I'm going to bring them in one at a time, let them say a few nice words about you, and then bring the next one in. First one is Bill Gorgo. It won't be fun if they say a few nice words about me. It's more fun when you roast you. (laughs) Bill Gorgo. You know, this goes way back. You know, you know that he goes back to my very beginning, back in Chicago. Uh, I, I'm I'm a little bit younger than Bill, but uh, <laughs> for about the last ten years, I passed him. I don't know, somewhere in the aughts, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Billy's freeze framing on us. Is he freeze framing on you? A little bit. Pardon me. Can you hear us? Bill? I can hear you. Uh, I want you okay, to know, Tom, okay. I've, I've read your book cover to cover, too. And I'm going to read the inside uh, starting next week. But oh, both covers are excellent. <laughs> the back's got a lot of words, but... <laughs> Billy's a funny and a good comedian and, and a good friend, a real good friend. In fact, I had a talk show in Chicago for a while, and Billy was on the staff. He was a writer. He's a terrific guy. Uh-huh. You know, we go back to Chicago... But, you know, when I go back and if I can be with you, I want to go and look at all the comedians. It's just so much fun to be around all the cats. Because, you know, I equate it to, and then Billy can put it on, I equate it to almost combat. When you're around comedians who have been doing it for a long time, you know, paying dues, suffering, on the road, can't get the rent, can't, I mean, you know, the gig cancels, uh, you know, all these things. As time goes by, it's almost like we bond. When we see one another, we know these are veterans, you know, they paid the dues. Mm-hmm. And just... Fun to be around. That's, that's true of all comedians, but in Chicago, 
you're leaving something out, and that something is Tom Dreesen. Uh, I knew very early on how important it was to pass on what you know to the other comics, to be supportive of the other comics. And I also knew that that went back to you. I got that from the first generation of Chicagoans who got it, uh, Chicago comics who got it from you, passed it on to the next generation. And eventually, uh, you know, I was a young lad and uh, they passed it on to me. But it goes back to you. You started the supportive nature of the Chicago comedy scene and that it's changed a little bit, but not as much as it has in other parts of the country. It's never been as competitive here. It's always been cooperative. And that's one mm -hmm. of the joys of starting in Chicago. That's all I knew. You know, thank you, Billy. You know, let me tell you, I was in the business four months. I snuck into Mr. Kelly's. Mozart was appearing there. <clears throat> At that time, Mozart was a big star on television and had records in it. And I snuck backstage trying to get some. I was really nervous. I knocked on his dressing room door in between shows. And I figured his manager was going to open the door and chase me away, but I was prepared. Mozart <laughs> opened the door. He was all alone. He said, yeah. I said, my name is Tom Dreesen, and I'm a new comedian. I wonder if I might talk to you. Come on in. He talked to me for two hours before his next show. He, he gave me advice. He gave me counsel. And he never talked down to me. He never talked to me like, like well, I'm a, he said, you know, Tommy, how we comedians think. I've been in the business four months. He said, how we comedians think. And when I left there, I was on cloud nine. I said, if I ever, ever get to any stature in this business, and a young comedian asked me for advice, I'm never going to forget this night of how great you make me feel. Then I, I take back everything I said. And Scott, if you ever have Mort Saul on, I'll be happy to say nice things to him instead. <laughs> no, Tom, it Thanks, was Bill. you. It was you. Uh, that's good. Thank you, Bill. I'm going to bring somebody else on. But uh, uh, Bill was good enough to be on my podcast, too. Uh, before we bring the next person on, I just want to remind you that you can get Still Standing at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can get the Kindle version. You can get the hardback version. If any of you buy it tonight, uh, pop it in the comments there, and then I can give you a shout out. Uh, my nephew, uh, my nephew Tom Demeester, uh, said he saw Tom with Frank Sinatra at Notre Dame about 34 years ago. How about yeah, that? And what a thrill for me, <clears throat> because <clears throat> my Irish Catholic mother would have dreamed that one day I'd go to Notre Dame. Yeah. And I was a high school dropout. Uh, got a high school diploma from the Navy, but but when I went to Notre Dame to appear with Frank, I, I thought about that. I said, I, I told my mom, I called her, she was still alive. And I said, I finally made it to Notre Dame, you know. Yeah. That was a great audience. That was a great crowd. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, let's bring up, uh, and folks, if you're just tuning in, if you don't mind uh, giving this feed a share so your friends can see it, uh, Tom's Tom's uh, given a lot of wisdom here, and everybody deserves to hear it. Let's bring up somebody else from your past, a young man named Mark Scheffler. Hey, Mark, how's it going? Fine in yourself. <laughs> One of the great comedy writers of all time. Mark, Mark, it's so good to see you. You too, Tom. So I, I, I listened to the last segment. And uh, I don't have anything bad to say about Tom, but I will tell you a joke that uh, when I when I first got to the comedy store in 1976, I became a regular in the early spring of 1976. The, the first comedian I actually had an interaction with was George Miller. Mm -hmm. George, George and I bonded over some pot in the corner of the comedy store parking lot. Uh -huh. So uh, uh, one of the things that the comedians would do after the comedy store was closed is we'd they'd go next door to the coffee shop at the Sunset Hyatt, and we'd sit around and throw jokes at each other and 
kind of, you know, do postmortems on our sets and, you know, and I desperately wanted to get to that table. So one night George invited me and I, I had, Tom was a legend by the time I got there. He was, he was an elder statesman. You know, he was one of those acts that when you, when you got to the comedy store, no matter what, this guy was above you. You didn't even mess around with it. Right. He would, he was there. So, so, but, but with a reputation uh, and Tom's reputation was it like he just said, he was kind and would talk to anyone about anything. And who knew that saying, hello, how are you? Uh, I had a 45 minute response to it. <laughs> so one night on my, on my first, like first couple of times sitting at that table in the sunset Hyatt house, I remember it was uh, Tom, it was George Miller, uh, it was Letterman, I think uh, Kelly Monteith was there, uh, uh, Glenn Super was there, uh, uh, Kelton might have been there, and me. And we're sitting around and we're talking, and George says, hey, hey, Tom, I got a great joke about you, I got a great joke about you. And, <laughs> and you said, what? He said, hey, Tom Dreesen got arrested. And, and and the table went, yeah. And he said, yeah. The police officer said, Mr. Dreesen, would you like to make a statement? And Tom said, yes, here at the station and in the car on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and George did that at a roast. They roasted me at the comedy store. Years I have ago. never, Tom, I have never forgot. I laughed so hard because, you know, number one, I was I was a kid. I was brand new. And nobody really knew me, but I, I just, I, I love, I love that joke. I, I've never forgotten that joke. George Miller was one of the great, one, uh, a great uh, comedy writer and, and a great stand-up comedian, dear friend of mine, and everybody's here. And he's gone now too. But, uh, but yeah, he, he, they roasted me when I had the comedy show. They were all new. It was, I had just done about two or three Tonight Show, so I was making that move before Leno and Letterman made their first Tonight Show. So. Uh, Mitchie had a, a, a roast night, and Dave Letterman was the master of ceremonies. That was before Dave was Dave, you know. And Jay was on it. Elaine Boozler was on it. Uh, Marshall Warfield was on it. Um, oh God, I'm trying to think of all the other. Uh, and George Miller j- just cracked the place up, you know. Uh, yeah, he. We had, you know. Anyhow, thank you, Mark. That was that was that, that's a fun story. So, so I'm going to tell one more story, and this is I'm going to I I don't want to embarrass you, Tom, but it's it's um. It's the, the, the testament to who you really are. You know, when somebody who does something nice, if you talk about it, you can see that they're a really decent person. They kind of get a little embarrassed. But if they're not, they just kind of stand there and take the glow. I've told this story to Tom in front of people, and I can always see how he kind of like turns inward because it was an act of kindness. My father used to come out and visit me when uh, um, back in those days. And and Tom was, as you know, opening for Frank Sinatra. So my dad used to love to hang out. And one of the places he would hang out with me is at the improv. And he got to know a bunch of comedians uh, through me. And Tom was one of them. So one night we're in there and Tom's there and my dad's there. And just out of the clear blue sky, Tom turns to my dad and says, hey, Lenny, uh, I'm going to be in Pittsburgh with Frank in uh, three weeks. You want to come? And like my father's of that generation, right? He was he was of that generation. Sinatra was his his god. So my dad says, yeah. So like a couple of three weeks later, whenever the date was, the next day I get a call from my dad and I hear greatest night of my life. And then a beat. And it said, no, no, when you were born, that was the greatest night of my life. This was the second greatest night of my life. And I said, dad, it's OK. If it was the greatest night of your life, I'm thrilled. 
It's, it's <laughs> but but the, this guy Tom Dreesen is this guy who does these these unsolicited acts of kindness yeah. that nobody ever expects, and that's that's the testament to the quality of the life that this guy leads. Mm-hmm. And you and by the way, I do remember your dad. You know, coming to that show. The, the wonderful thing about Frank Sinatra and the fourteen years I. 550 cities a year, wherever we were, whoever I brought backstage, he never, ever, ever said no. I mean, from, yeah. I mean, of course, my mom, but I, mean, I brought back bartenders. I brought the guys who drove a bread truck. I brought the chairman of the House of Ways and Means Committee. I, I brought the senators. I mean, whoever I brought back, he never said no. In fact, he always treated uh, uh, the cliche, the little guy. If I said, this is the chairman of the House of Ways and Means Committee, you know, Dan Rosenkowski from Chicago, he'd say, oh, it's nice to meet you. And he was very polite. But if I said, this is, you know, Haroldine drove a bread truck back in my, he'd go, really? Now tell me, what kind of bread was it? Was it the Italian bread? He would treat that little guy so much more special, you know what I'm saying? Or the corner bartender. And and and, uh, and so Lenny, whoever, whoever I brought backstage um, to meet Frank, he was always gracious. He never, ever said, Tommy, no, I'm, I got things to do. He never, never, ever turned me down. God bless him. Well, it's like, probably the reason why you guys clicked and, and gelled together because you both had that same, you never lost sight of the fact of where you came from and uh, what the journey was. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you say, bring that up. And, I, and in the book, you'll see a lot of interesting things about that. But when you're with Frank Sinatra, this is the great Frank Sinatra. I mean, this is a guy who walked to the microphone and got standing ovations and he hadn't sung a note. Not know how 20,000 people would rise to their feet and electrified by his mere presence. And and, and, when, and by the way, I was a fan. The one reason I stayed with him as many years as I did, he never knew how much in awe of him I was. I never let him see that. Because I picked up on that when I first started turning with him. He had millions of fans. He didn't need another fan. So when, when I, um, uh, you know, when I'd be alone with him in the car, he stayed up till dawn. He never went to bed till the sun came up, whether we were on the road or off the road. So, yeah, George Slaughter told me that, that same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, he never went to bed till the sun came up. And I'd, I'd, be, I'd be driving around the desert. But when we got in the car alone some nights, he wasn't Frank Sinatra, and I wasn't Tom Beeson. We were—I was a kid from the South Side of Chicago, and he was a kid from Hoboken. Yeah. And we somehow talked like two guys. It's hard to believe that because because I was in awe of him as well. You know how many yeah. times I wanted to say to him, "Oh, when you did from here to eternity," or you know, tonight when you killed that audience. But that, I'd be gushing over him, and he 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 he, he didn't want that. Yeah. And so, but but he uh, he just he he come this kid from Hoboken, and he'd start telling me about his childhood. And first of all, I had three children, a girl, boy, girl. He had three children, a girl, boy, girl. I'm half Sicilian. He's half Sicilian. You know, he, we had a lot in common, and yet he was still heads and shoulders above me as far as a career. But when you got along with him, he was just another guy like we are when we hang out. Comedians love to hang out after the shows or before the shows. One of my favorite quotes in the book is uh, Frank says, if I'm a saloon singer, then Tommy is a saloon comedian. By that, I mean we're just a couple neighborhood guys. Yeah, yeah that, that, that touched me so much when he told that reporter that. Mm-hmm. The reporter came up to him trying to be kind of cute. I knew the reporter. We were at Patchy's Restaurant in New York, and the reporter was walking out, and he walked over the table, and he said to Frank, why do you keep this guy Dreesen with you, Frank, all these years? Why do you keep him? And Frank said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? <laughs> yeah. Said, yeah, and Frank said, well, that quote. He said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, then I am. Then Tommy's a saloon comedian. But that we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. And that's what we were when we got alone in the car. It's hard to believe that. And I, I would pinch myself sometimes. You know, I tell a story in the book, but it's true. One night, 
we're driving alone in the desert, this house, this compound, and he told me a very personal story, a story he told it. He said, I shouldn't have told you that. And I said, well, it won't go any further than this car. He said, I know, I know, but I shouldn't have told you that. I said, well, like I said, it's not going to go any further than this car. And by the way, it's not like we're strangers. You know, we're friends. I said, we're not strangers. And I don't know what made me do it. I'm driving. I looked at him. I said, strangers in the night, exchanging glances. He said, oh, my God, if you're going to sing this song, get in key. <laughs> <laughs> and he started singing to me, wondering in the night. I said, what were the chances? And we're doing the back and forth, right? Now we put in the compound and we get in and he always said to me, good night, Tommy. He'd say, good night, Tommy. And <laughs> he's walking, I'm walking to the bungalow and I'm thinking, if I went back to my own neighborhood in the corner taverns and I told all my buddies who I used to be a bartender, you know, I was riding around with Frank tonight. We were singing Strangers and I did go, get the hell out of here with that. <laughs> but it happened and it's a night I'll never, ever forget. It was wonderful. That's great. Mark, I got to tell you, um, the the fact that uh, you mentioned that Tom can talk, he was a great first guest on the podcast because I brought him on and I said, OK, go. And I didn't have to say another word. So it was it was beautiful. <laughs> I'm embarrassed, but I'll tell you, my manager, Dan Wiley, God rest his soul, a guy from Canada once called him years ago and said, I have to. <laughs> can I swear on it? I can't swear on this. Don't worry, yeah, you can. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't I don't I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, Another way, but, but my manager said, um, the guy said, I'm the guy from Canada, said, I got to interview your client, Tom Dreesen. Can you give me some things to say that will open up conversation? <laughs> Hello. And my manager said, ask him how his day went and then get the hell out of his way. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but Mark, David, thank you for David stopping Letterman, by. David Letterman's forward in his book, Mark, I don't know if you've read it, but his forward in his book, Says just what you said. Yep, it's hilarious. Yeah. I'm going to get a copy and you're going to sign it to him. I'm going to arrange for you to, to get it to you to sign it for me. I will, Mark. Could you get 10 copies and kind of give them away to your friends? <laughs> <laughs> we'll meet at Jerry's Deli, Mark. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Good to see you, Tom. Good to see you, Mark. Thank you. Hey, before I bring the uh, next uh, surprise guest out, I do want to let folks know that uh, we're about halfway through here. If you write the word, hey, in the comments, either in uh, Facebook or YouTube, just write the word, hey, you will be in a drawing to win an autographed copy of this book still standing. This very book right here, you're going to get this auto you're going to get this autographed by Tom and it's going to come to you. So say, hey, sometime during the night and you will get an autographed copy. Hey, I got somebody else here for you, Tom. Oh, be, be, before we talk to Nick, um, Sean, uh, Eli Breitbart says, let's try this again. Tom, I was at the New York Comedy Coalition over a decade ago when you spoke. I really appreciate it. As a new comic, then it was meaningful. So, uh, Sean, I appreciate that. That's the talk I told you I give the comedians. It's a motivation speech, <clears throat> but it's, it's also, if they're new, it's instructional, but it's a motivation speech called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There, you know how to enjoy this journey. Thank you, Sean. I'm, I'm, I hope I'm glad it, it helped you. Mm -hmm. So we got this guy here, uh, Nick Carmen Cosentino. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but uh, he said he wanted to come on and say some nice stuff about you. So Nick, I go ahead. When you, no, got a, I, you, got I, you got know a, what the truth is, Tom's been in my life uh, since 77. He just doesn't, he doesn't know it. Um, when I, was comic, I, I started comedy in uh, May of 77 and 
all I kept hearing from uh, from the people back then, Larry Reeve, uh, um, Jeff Allen, um, uh, Ted Holum, and on and on and on, all the guys from that came after you because after the La Pub or the Pickle Barrel, uh, and it came to the Comedy Cottage or the Comedy Wolf, and I go, who the hell is this Tom Dreesen guy? So they started giving me these little tidbits uh, of wisdom th that I have carried my entire life with me, and not just for comedy, for for anything. And one is uh, uh, one is uh, there are two words in uh, in show business, show and business, and business is the bigger word. And uh, you uh, supposedly said that I, I'm assuming you did. It sounds like you. And the other one is you can come to LA uh, six minutes, uh, six months too early, but you could never come six months too late. Did you say that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And but those were those were guides for me as a young comic, and I never made it to LA because I went to New York and I just stayed there. I love New York. I, I did uh, uh, live in Van Nuys for I don't know six months and. As you know, back then, this was the late 70s. It was, uh, if you're unknown, it's impossible to break in at the, at the county store. I would have eventually, I'm sure. But uh, I got it too. Right? And matter of fact... I just want to cover up my face while you guys are talking. So. I'm, I'm embarrassed because I have it too. There you are. Just I don't know, five years, six years, but uh, you've been in my life for 43 years. That was the start of it. Uh, then there were other times that his name would come up. Uh, Billy Rizzo was my first manager. I lived in Vegas at the time. You remember Billy? He used sure. to a book, uh, The Playboy Club. And uh, when when he found out I was from Chicago, he said, oh yeah, Tom Dreesen's from Chicago. I said, oh, you know, Tom? He goes, yeah. The guy is so sweet. If you were diabetic, you would die. <laughs> That's what he used to say about you. And uh, he was really, and, and I did a favor for uh, Billy and, and Jackie Gale once uh, because uh, Bill Acosta uh, drove a car to, uh, to Lake Tahoe when he wasn't supposed to. It was Miriam Anka's uh, car and Paul Anka's uh, sister who had a car dealership. So she was going to have him arrested. So they threw me out there and I had to drive back. I didn't know that it was a 10 hour ride from Lake Tahoe to back to Vegas. And <laughs> so uh, they rewarded me by uh, giving me a Playboy Club gig. I had like the Playboy Club in 1980. And you were there at the same time, like a, a week or two later at uh, Geneva. Mm -hmm. And I went to see you in Geneva. I know you don't remember me. I, you know, uh, I, I probably was brief in my uh, uh, my uh, introduction. And another time that we met, I was performing in New Jersey on the shore, and you happened to be there in the audience. And it was myself and, do you know the legendary Wid by any chance, uh, Tom? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we just talked about it. It was Wid and I, we were uh, doing the show, and after the show, on the sidewalk, outside of the club, you started talking. Well, it was two hours later before that. 
<laughs> they go they go home. So uh, yeah, like I said, you've been spottedly in my life for a long time. I'm sorry I never uh, made it to L.A. I probably would have uh, done okay. I just L.A. for some reason just didn't suit me. And uh, there's a lot of comics in New York that you know, Tom. I know uh, that just didn't want to make that move, and I was one of them. But I was uh, in New York. I was well known <laughs> around the country, and I had a, a wonderful, wonderful career. And uh, but I, I want you to know you've been my guiding light for 43 years. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm touched by that. The the I, by the way. I'm not fond of Los Angeles. I, I've never, never was. I, I, I don't fit in well here. I, when I hang out, I always hung out with former street guys like myself. Even, even my Italian buddies out here, are, you know, Frankie Valley and, and uh, Dennis Farina, God rest his soul. Frankie Avalon, James Darren, um, Joe Montaigne, um, Gary. Yeah. They're all guys from the neighborhood, back from the old neighborhood. Joe Pesci. Yeah. You know, we're from different neighborhoods, but we're all neighborhood kind of guys. I, I didn't identify well with the Hollywood people. Um, the, the, I was fortunate when I toured with Frank Sinatra that he introduced me to people who were so comfortable in their skin. They weren't young, coke snorting, you know, crazed yeah. young celebrities. Uh, it, it, but the reason that you had to come here was business, as Nick pointed out. We're in two, we're in show business. Two words: show and business. And those days in 1975, wherever you went in America. People say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? If you haven't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, they didn't think you were a comedian. So we all knew, how do we get to Johnny Carson? Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show, got a sitcom the next day. The next day. He was he was on the cover of, of Time magazine like two weeks later. One appearance on The Tonight Show. So, And I did one appearance on The Tonight Show. The next day, CBS signed me to a development deal. A guy named Lee Curlin from New York was watching the show that night. I was on my rear end, drawing unemployment, a wife and three kids, and one day, and the next day, my whole life changed. I've never stopped working. So that was the reason we came out of it, because of the business. So you would say, well, how do I get on The Tonight Show? You would watch those comedians that scored on The Tonight Show, and you had the right material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. You couldn't do any blue material. You couldn't say hell, because there wasn't cable television in those Mm-hmm. It was this big, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, you know, so we, I great came out here. Uh, fortunately, when I came out here working at the comedy store, I, I met lifelong friends, David Letterman being one of them, of course, and Jay Leno and, and uh, you know, and the guys that were on earlier here. Uh, Lou Deck was, you know, all those guys. We played basketball together. We played, you know, softball together. But I, I still wasn't in the Hollywood scene, and I'm not to this day. I'm very uncomfortable around show business people who think just because they they're on a sitcom that you that they look down on you they have this condescending uh, view of you uh, you know that they think that limos are supposed to take them everywhere and red carpets roll out for them they're prim, they're prima donnas and i'm i'm from the streets i don't have a degree from academia but i got a doctorate from the streets and i identify more with people like that nick like nikki for an example mm-hmm. um, that, that's why speaking of speaking of uh uh, that in, in a sort of the same vein, um, when I remember I would, uh, after every show, I would, uh, stand in the door and thank people coming out. I felt that was my job that they, if they had, they came to see me and I could at least thank them for coming. And so, uh, I, I remember a young comic once told me, why do you do that? I want to go. I want to, cause he drove with me. I go, Hey, this is business. 
you know, I wanted people to remember me and like me, and I genuinely wanted to thank them. But the accolades always made me uncomfortable. Are you uncomfortable when somebody is uh, uh, complimenting you after a show? It's always uncomfortable. And I, I didn't know ever how to, uh, to take care of that part of it. By the way, Frank Sinatra couldn't take a compliment. He, he, he would brush it off. I've always been uncomfortable, but I remember an acting class in Chicago. I studied with a, a, a married couple called Madeline and Joe Young. And one, and then Joe Young was tough on, on, on the actors. And one night I did something good. And he said, now that. And he complimented me. And I was like hemming and hawing. And he said, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I, I, just, I just have trouble sometimes taking a compliment. And his wife said, why don't you just say thank you and shut up? <laughs> <laughs> From that point on, Nikki, that was my, when somebody said, oh, I really enjoyed your show. I'd say, thank you. And shut up, you know. <laughs> or or, or I, I would always compliment them. They'd say, you were really yeah. funny. I'd say, I'd say, oh, you're a great crowd. You know, you're a great crowd. I'd give them the credit, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, you I didn't deal with, another thing I didn't deal with a lot was hecklers. I, I would uh, do, be doing my bits. And then uh, I had a nice role going. And somebody would heckle me. And I would just turn to them and go, I hate you. Shut up. And go right back into my bit. And it became my, it, it became my heckler. <laughs> you know? and, and it worked all the time. That was the surprise. Oh, that's a great line. I, never, I, I wish I'd have known. There were nights I wish I'd have had that line. That's a good line. I'll tell you a great heckler story. One night at the improvisation, I'm, I'm doing tonight shows, and like I say, every time you do the tonight show, you had to do a new six minutes. So I had my tape recorder. It's like one o'clock in the morning. There's 17 people in the audience. They're all scattered, and I'm just trying to on the rhythm of these new new jokes. So I the, 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 over in the darkness, I couldn't see the guy, but I did a joke, a line, and it got a laugh. The guy in the darkness fired back another line. It got a bigger laugh. So you know, I do a joke, and I'd get a laugh, and he'd say something from the darkness. It got a bigger laugh, and now the audience is really in on it now. I can't see who the guy is because the light's in your face. I mean, each time I do something, I'd get a laugh. He'd get a bigger laugh with his retort. And finally, I'm, I, I did a line to him, and it got a good laugh. He did a line back to me, got a bigger laugh. And I did a line back to him, got the biggest laugh of the night. And everybody applauded him. And I should have left the guy alone because he was so clever. <laughs> he wasn't a mean guy. He wasn't a heckler. He no, just was a so now I go back to center stage and I think about it and I go back in, in the darkness and I look under and I say to the guy, just between you and me, I won that one. And from the darkness, he said, just between you and me, you needed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Later, after the show, I go out in front of the guys out there and he's a real nice guy. He, I remember he was from Aurora, Colorado. And I said to him, are you a comedian? He said, no, no. I said, do you write comedy? No, he said, I'm just visiting my sister here. And I said, you're not a comedian. You're not right. No, no. I said, are you in showbiz? No, no. I said, would you do me a favor? I gave my card. I said, if you think of funny things like tonight, send that to me. I gave my address. He never got in touch with me because I, this guy would have been a terrific writer for standups. I, I think once in a while, we all meet that person that's just innately funny. You know, they don't mean to be, they just are. Yeah. You know? and, and there's a certain brilliance about them too. You know, a, a deep intelligence and I, 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 you find those people maybe one out of every hundred people or something like that, I think. And they, you, he sounds like one of those. L Lenny Bruce hung around with a guy that later hung with Rodney Dangerfield. I think his name was Ansis, Joe Ansis. And he was one of those table guys. He wasn't, couldn't get up on stage and be funny, 
But sitting around with him, you'd bring a pen and paper because he just spewed out the funniest lines. And those guys both used them a lot. You know, uh, there were just, like you're right. There are a lot of people that can't get up on stage and be funny, or they yeah. can't, you know, like but but uh, but they've got these clever minds and stuff. You know, and, and by the way, writing comedy and a sitcom and writing comedy for a stand-up comedian are two different animals. Absolutely. Yeah. And see, on a sitcom, you can write teehees, what I call teehees. You know, oh, tee, close the door, Harold. Ee, you know, hear this sweet, you know. But when, when you are out there alone, you, you, it better be guffaws, not teehees. You know, yeah. you, I can write teehees all day long. It's the guffaws that you search yeah. for. Well, <laughs> and, and then, not only that, but it's it's about you. It should be about you and your observations. But uh, a lot of it is personal about you. So, uh, you, yeah, you don't want a tee on right. your own life story. To the new comedians out there, if you new comedians are listening, Jack Benny gave me the best advice that I always pass on. He said, when you're a new comedian, when you're a star, you can go out and open your opening line is about the government of the airlines because they came to see you. But when you're a new comedian, he said, your first eight to 10 minutes should be about you. Tell me about where you're from. He told me I was doing a show in Chicago. I'd been in business just a short time. And he said to me, Tommy, when you do your first Tonight Show, well, the Tonight Show was the furthest thing from my mind. But he said, you first go out there, in those days, 26 million people watch that show. He yeah. said, you go out in front of 26 million strangers. Don't walk out there and tell them about the government or the airlines. Tell them about you, where you're from, so now they know your accent. You, know, you come from Harvey, Illinois, a suburb on the south side of Chicago. Yeah. You have eight brothers and sisters. You went to Catholic school. You know, do, do those. You played basketball, an all-black basketball team. So after eight, six, eight minutes on The Tonight Show, in front of 26 million strangers, when you walk off, They'll say, isn't he funny? And you know he's from Harvey, Illinois. He went to uh, Catholic school. You, you left part of you out there. You introduced yourself to 26 million strangers, but they now know about you through laughter. You know, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it, it was great advice that I followed all the time. You know? Yeah. It's Nick, thank you so much for spirit. being on. Uh, Scott, nice meeting you too. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to get together and talk comedy. Uh, I, I've got a podcast you might have heard of called Behind the Bits, so maybe we can talk on there. Okay, it sounds good. Tom, <laughs> thanks. Again, uh, thanks for being in my life for 43 years, and great book. And I hope listen, so. you know it was going to be uh, some time before I saw you, so I, I wanted you to sign it. I couldn't wait, so I signed it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Way to go. Uh, Thanks, Nick. Uh, Before we go on to the next segment, we've got uh, the book is still standing and it's available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. You can get hardcover. You can get the Kindle edition. It's a fantastic book. I read it in three nights. I uh, stayed up late because I couldn't stop turning pages. So it's a fantastic book. It's still standing. And that's why Tom's here tonight. Tom, do you do you have to be anywhere? No, I'm fine. I'm okay, because <laughs> we're running a little long. Hey, I've got a couple people who uh, approach me about asking you some questions. I'm going to bring them on. But first, I want to show a couple pictures that didn't make it in the book. The first one is uh, some dude named Scott Curtis, just giddy when he finally gets to meet you in person and in Valparaiso, Indiana, after his, seeing your Sinatra show. That's uh, that. That's probably the giddiest you've ever seen me because I'm pretty stone-faced. Uh, and the uh, next one, my wife's going to be mad at me, but the next one's all three of us together. Uh, 
Those didn't make the book, but I wanted to put them up. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun show that night, Valparaiso, Indiana. That was, that's my one-man show where I do, uh, uh, it's called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. Sometimes I call it um, the, the Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. And I may start calling it Still Standing, you know, the, the show, um, because of the, the popularity of the book so far. But it, all it is is, I, I, as you know, I come out and do stand-up comedy, but then I go to a bar and I segue over to a bar and there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar and, and I telephone to laugh and then all the lights go out and then Frank Sinatra appears on the screen singing, it's quarter to three, there's no one in the place except you and me, a saloon song. And then when he, when he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby, one more for the road, he goes off screen and the spotlight hits me and now the audience is in a bar with me and I've come home. And I take them on that journey, you know. Mm. Yeah, it was it was it was a great show, and I was so glad I was able to see it. It was one of the one of the highlights of my year last year. It was just fantastic. So I've got a couple folks. Uh, first of all, first off, Johnny Vegas says greetings from a former Lions Illinois boy. So, uh, hey Johnny, how are you? And um, I've got a couple people who want to come on and ask you a question. Uh, so Drew actually ran his question by me, and you may have already answered it, but uh, Drew wants to come on and ask you something. We'll see if he asks the same question that, uh, that Lou started. Hey, Drew. Hey, how you doing? All right. Man, I'm fired up. This is great, man. This, this is, is Tom Dreesen, by the way. Yeah, Tom, what a what a great story. I love hearing from you, and this is this is great. Um, couple things. Yeah, I wanted to ask a little bit. Of, it was already addressed earlier about the basketball team, uh, being on the Comedy Store basketball team and, and, and maybe some of the great things that ha you went along with that. But also you had so many different roles and so many different uh, things that you were involved in. And, and one of my favorite uh, bits was um, in Spaceballs uh, with the Vulcan death grip scene. And I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that, maybe uh, in, in terms of the scene itself or maybe uh, – interacting with some of the other people on set and things like that. Oh, you know, you know, I got that role in Spaceballs. <clears throat> I, I just got a divorce. <clears throat> I'm in a bar with a beautiful young girl, tall girl. Her name was Trish, I remember. And I'm in, in, in Santa Monica and, and, and at the bar waiting for a table. And Mel Brooks was in the, in the restaurant. And he sees her. He sees a beautiful girl. He didn't see me because I was sitting down. He walks all the way around. He's walking right now. He sees me sitting there. And he goes, hey, Dreesen, how you doing? I say, hey, Mel, because I had met him before. I said, how are you doing? I said, this is my girlfriend, Trish. He said to me, what are you doing Monday, Trish? And I said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, I'm doing a film. I said, I'll do it. He said, wait a minute. I didn't even finish what I was saying. I said, I don't care. I'll do it. Whatever. You want me to sweep the floor? This is Mel Brooks. Are you kidding me? I'll do whatever you want me to do. So he gave me, he said, it's a, it's a small scene. You can have a few words in it. And, and he said, but, but I'll pay you. I'll give you a good price. And I said, oh, I'll be happy to. He, he used me for two days. But the scene was, in there were, I was one of the guards and I forgot the lead's name, but the lead was going around the spaceship and I shaven, I got all the shaving people and I'm shaving and I think it's another guard. And I go, Lothario, is that you? And then I wait, I said, wait a minute, you're not Lothario. And I'm going, guards, guards. And he, his ring draws a can of shaving cream to his hand, you know, and, <laughs> and he, then when I'm screaming guards, he sprays the shaving cream in my mouth. And I got the picture on my office wall right here. Hit the floor. I, I die, right? Because he sprays it in my mouth. Now, when I'm laying there, you know, the scene is still rolling. But what they didn't realize, that can of shaving cream was whipped cream, right? But they had set it like on a window for the longest time. And it got like the sun came to it. Or Anyhow, when he sprayed me, that was sour. Uh -huh. I, it was like sour milk. When I hit the floor, I'm gagging. Now, I'm laying there, but I can't move because the scenes, they're still rolling. You know, 
And, and when he yelled, cut, Mel went, cut, I ran to the bathroom. <laughs> and Mel comes in the bathroom, he's going, Dreesen, he thought I was nervous from the scene. And I said, Dreesen, are you all right? I said, Mel, what the F was in that can? What was in that can? He went like this, he went, ooh, Jesus, Jesus. Like sour milk. I had to do the scene two or three times more, you know. But I, I was, you know, tasting, I mean, I'll never forget that day, you know. I got That's that picture great. on my that movie lives on too. Yeah. yeah. By the way, Drew, in answer to your question, they hang around with Carl Reiner, and, I, and Carl was an old friend oh. too. God rest his soul. Yeah. Him and Mel Brooks, the stories they told. The, the, I mean, I'll tell you a quick one. You remember the the, the um, movie, The Producers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It was a play on Broadway before it became a movie. You know, Mel Brooks wrote the play. Huh. Now, Larry Galbart told me that he was with. He was on the set that day. Larry Galbart told me that. Him and Mel, after the first act, and when the producers, opening night and the producers, after the first act, they were in the lobby waiting for act two. And a guy came out and he came up to Mel Brooks and he said, I don't like your play. I don't like your play at all. He said, because you're glorifying Adolf Hitler. That's what you're doing in this play. You're glorifying him. He said, and I resent that. He said, I was in World War II and I resent that. And Mel Brooks looked at him. He said, I was in World War II. I never saw you. <laughs> Only Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks has got the sharpest mind. Uh, <laughs> that was great. Hey, That's thanks awesome. for coming on, Drew, and asking a question. Thank you so much. It. it was awesome. Thank you. Hey, Drew. Thank one you. more question for you, Tom. Uh, I've got uh, Caitlin going to come on, but before we do that, don't forget the book still standing is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can get it online. You can have it delivered to you. And if you say, hey, in the comments tonight, you're going to be in a drawing. I'll, I will reach out to you after the show, and you're going to get an autographed copy of Still Standing, which is about the best thing you can get this year, I think. Well, I'm going to put hey in there. Maybe I'll win this thing. Hey. <laughs> okay, I'm going to bring on uh, Caitlin Schultz, who is actually oh, the no. – I, I, I gave away a copy of the book last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, won yesterday. A, yeah. a copy of the book last week, and she wanted to come on and ask a question. So what you got for Tom, Caitlin? Hi, hey, Caitlin. Um, <laughs> how's it going? It's an honor to meet you. Um, I just wanted to say, like, congrats on over 50 years in comedy. That's amazing. Um, I don't know. That's a really cool feat. Um, so I'm just honored to talk to you right now. Um, my question is, um, so I'm 32, and I'm pretty new to the open mic scene right now. Um, I spend a lot of my my time working multiple jobs just to maintain where I am in life right now. So my question for you is, how did you carve out time and motivate yourself um, to pursue a comedy career early on, even with all of your other life responsibilities as far as bills and things like that? Yeah, I got to tell you, Caitlin, <clears throat> it, it, what you're going through is the hardest time in comedy, open mic nights. You go to open mic nights, and first of all, who's in the audience? It's, let's just say there's 20 people. Them are going to get up there in a minute, or or they're friends of the person that's going to get up there in a minute, and so they're they're not really wanting you to score because if you score, by comparison, they may. It's it, I've been there. It's the toughest time in, in your business, but perseverance. Uh, I tell you, Bertram Russell once had a terrific line. He and it, it pertains to all of us, but he said. There are people in show business who become major stars simply because they didn't have sense enough to quit when they should have. 
<laughs> that's good. <laughs> I like that. And that's our story. Caitlin, you know, we go to those open mics. I, I, my encouragement to you is don't give up. Don't give up. If, if you have the skill to make people laugh on the stage, as I pointed out earlier, I don't know if you heard earlier, how unique you are. And to, you know, people can't do what you do. They can't, they don't. They, so, you know, that's a gift that you're given. And if that's what, if you're doing it for all the right reasons and because you love hearing the sound of laughter, you like making people laugh. I'm going to get to another point in that, but persistence, stage time, stage time, stage time. I once said a line that they, they end up using and I'm dying up here in, in, the, um, in the show. But I said, uh, 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 you know, a guy, guy I saw joined Alcoholics Anonymous, a comedian. He, he didn't have a drinking problem, but he needed the stage time. You know? <laughs> That's great. Hey, I'm, I'm Bill and I'm an alcoholic. And then he'd do about five minutes, you know, because <laughs> there's no substitute for that. So every time you get up there, and, and don't take it personal when, when you, an open mic night, if you don't score, because like I say, you know, who's in the audience, other people who are trying to score, but that stage time, but then look to get on beyond that by that. What now I would go to every charity. I would call charities and say, I understand you're doing a thing this week for, for cancer or for the local church or whatever. <clears throat> would you like an MC? You know, and then I would, I would, and I'd go get their program and I'd say, you know, hi, welcome to such and such charity tonight. And maybe I do a joke or two. You know, but I wouldn't say, would you like a comedian? Because then they expect you to go over and do 20 solid, hard minutes and score. I'd say, would you like me to MC? I'd like to MC your father. I'm very sympathetic to your cause. And then when you MC, you do a couple of jokes or two, you know, so that gives you more stage presence, more stage time. You know, um, there's no substitute for that. You know, and then I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this, Caitlin. There's two energies that drive us our whole life. Uh, I, when I read all these books on positive mental attitude when I, when I was struggling, I could never understand the yin and the yang. What is yin and yang? I'd always hear these Eastern philosophers and the yin and the yang. And, 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 and the more I read, I began to realize that we're two, there's two energies we come from. Number one, our ego or our Holy Spirit. Call it what you want, your spirit, your soul, your center. But we're driven by both those energies. Now, when you're born, you're not born ego. You don't know if you're boy or girl, Jew or Gentile, black or white. You don't know what you, you're, you're just a spirit and you love everything that you, that loves you and you gravitate that loves you. That's your spirit. That's who you really are. You were born spirit. Now, well-intentioned adults, sometimes misinformed, start programming our computer. We little boys do this, we little girls, do this. our Catholics do this and we, you know, our Italians do this, whatever it is. By the time you're four or five years old, you start developing an image of yourself based upon information. Thus, the ego is formed. Now, the rest of your life, your yin and your yang is your ego and your spirit. Your ego and your spirit, your ego and your spirit, you know, and, and, and the ego has an insatiable appetite. The ego cannot get enough fame, fortune, money, power. It simply can't get enough. It will drive you to destruction one day. It'll drive you to a place where you'll fail because it can't get enough. The spirit, conversely, is like that song of the 70s by the Hollies. All I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. That's all your spirit needs. So we're, we, we're drawn to you, you, you were drawn by those two energies. So uh, you're driving down the street and a guy pulls in front of you and slam you, slam on it. You son of a, I'm like, this is my space, my world. You're cursing. That's your ego. Your spirit says, oh my glad, God, I'm glad he's safe or she's safe and no one's hurt and have a good day. That's your spirit. Stay close to that. If you're in show business as a comedian, because you love to hear the sound of laughter, because you like making people feel better for having had your service, you, that you enjoy it. 
then that's the reason. If you're in show business because I'm going to get that new that Rolls Royce and I'm going to get five of those and I'll show all those sons of bitches back home that, you know, that's your ego. <laughs> try, to, try to be in touch with the spirit. Whenever you go on stage every night, by the way, I'll give you now, now, as they say, I'm giving a lecture now. Caitlin, it's a conversation, not a conversation. <laughs> you understand? You, you know, it's like Caitlin. Caitlin, you, you and I are married. We're not being married. You, you know, and, I, and I'm a chef. I'm cooking. And I say, oh, Caitlin, geez, there's 20 people in the living room and, and I don't have dinner ready. Do me for Caitlin. Go out tell them some of those funny stories that you tell all the time. That's how you walk out on a stage every night. It's our house. It isn't their house. We're always intimidated when we go to a new comedy club or something. I've never been here before. No, no, this is our house. If they could do what we do, they'd they can't do what we do. That's why they're audience. So when you walk out on stage, you know, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Is it your act? You damn right it's your act. It's your job to make it look like it's not an act. You know, so you, you, Caitlin goes out to, hey, dinner will be ready in a few minutes. But, you know, I got to tell you, you know, my mom said to me when I was going, it's a conversation. Did I, did I overdo it, Caitlin? No, that's a cool perspective, um, especially with just the um, the alternate forms of um, uh just trying to get stage time. That's, that's really cool. Um, I like that. And it makes me feel a lot better. Um, just about trying to get, get more time. So that's awesome. And thank you for letting me talk to you. This has been really cool. Thanks for coming on Caitlin. And I am no Tom Dreesen, but I can tell you that, uh, I've seen you and you are funny. So keep it up. <laughs> hey, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for coming on Caitlin. I appreciate it. See ya. Thank you, Caitlin. All right. Hey, folks, you still got time to say hey and get an autographed copy of Still Standing by Tom Dreesen that is available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. You can get the hardcover. You can get the Kindle edition. You can read it however you want, but you should read it because it's great. Tom, I've got one more thing I want to ask you before we end tonight. And everybody who's been on tonight, I want to let you know that this is going to, this video is going to live forever on YouTube. So you can share it with your friends and it's always going to be there for you. So if you came on tonight or you want to share this with your friends, probably tomorrow about this time, it takes about 20 hours for it to propagate. About, tomorrow about this time, you can start sharing it. So it's going to be there forever. Um, there's one, There's one story in the book that, I wanted to hear out of your mouth because it was one of my favorite stories. Can you talk about the time that Frank Sinatra saved Johnny Carson's life? Wow. It, it might be too long, but you know, I, I think they, that'll give him a teaser to read the book, but <clears throat> Johnny Carson actually did a very foolish thing when he was a new star in New York. He was had just taken over the tonight show and he was a new young kid. Taking over, He'd been a game show host. And he, he made a terrible mistake one night. By Johnny's own admission in his lifetime, he was not a good drinker. You know, he, he, he admitted this. He wasn't, you know, I'm going to digress. When I was a bartender in my neighborhood back in Harvey, Illinois, I noticed my buddies, you know, I'm not drinking. I'm telling bar all night long. My buddies sometimes would go through the three hours when they were drinking. If, if some of the nights, if some guys, if they had a couple of drinks, they'd become Rocky Marciano. They want to fight everybody in the place. Other guys... A couple of drinks, they become Rudolph Valentino. They want to bang every chick in the place. Right now. <laughs> That's a expression. But they become, you know, very romantic, you know, amorous. And other guys, three drinks, and they'd be like Rip Van Winkle. They just, you know, it, it, it numbed them. Alcohol affected everybody differently. Johnny Carson would have a couple of drinks, and he would just get silly. And, and he admitted that. Well, anyhow, 
he's out with Ed McMahon one night and they go into Jilly's bar in New York on West 48th street. And there was a very dangerous guy there named crazy Joey Gallo and crazy Joey Gallo, the five dons of New York could not control him. Uh, he killed his first man at 17 or something like that. And he was, and, and they didn't call him crazy Joey for no reason. He was <laughs> psychopathic would kill you in a heartbeat. And anyhow, he brought in two girls in the bar, two other guys with him, and they used the back room. They wanted to talk, but he left the two girls at the bar, and the girls had mini skirts on. And Johnny Carson walked in a little while later with Ed McMahon, both drinking, and he sees the two girls, and he snuck up behind him and put his hand up the dress, and she started screaming, and Crazy Joy came out, and I'm not going to tell you anymore, because in the book, in the book. <laughs> it's he, a great story. It's done. Um, it's done. That story alone is worth worth this book because I was I, I was just floored by that story. So the, the book is still standing. My journey from streets and saloons to the stage in Sinatra. And it's Tom Dreesen's story from the time he can remember anything all the way up until, until just about today. So, uh, you know, I, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being the first guest on my podcast. And, you know, uh, like Nick. Nick said when he came on, you've affected so many people and you've affected so many people you've never even met. And that was, I, I was one of those people. So, you know, keep doing that. And uh, this book is, like I said, it's a, it's a gem. And especially in the world we live in right now, I think it's very important to read something like this because um, it, it tells you how bad life can be and how uplifting it can be at the same time. Um, it's been a great journey, and Frank Sinatra's last song he ever sang on stage is "The Best Is Yet to Come." Yep. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Tom. This has been great, and everybody who watched, thank you for watching, and thank you for listening to Behind the Bits podcast. Who You're won gonna... the book? How do you find out who won the book? Oh, we don't know who won the book. Oh, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna tabulate things afterwards because they came so fast that I couldn't uh, I couldn't keep them. So what I'm gonna do if you do win the book, I'm gonna contact you via Facebook. And if you win, the only thing I ask is when you get it, you take a picture of yourself with the book so I can put it on the behind the bits page and tag Tom. Okay. Thanks, Thanks so much, Scott. Th thank you so much, Tom. I'm gonna go off live here.